Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would have mercy on us tonight. Open our ears to hear both from the Lord Jesus and of the Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Obviously, sit down. If you could be turning back in, uh, in your Bibles uh, to uh, the, uh, the book of Hebrews and chapter 1. Uh, it's on page 1201 in your Bibles. There's also uh, something of an outline in amongst the pieces of paper you were given on the way in. You might use, want to use that to... Uh, follow along as we go through this or to make notes on. I was uh, reminiscing the other day with someone of similarly semi-advanced years uh, about the decline of the public information film. I'm not sure I'm terribly sad about the decline of the public information film, but there used to be a very prominent feature of national life. And uh, in the second half of the 1970s, Uh, Yes, I was there, and I was uh, about nine or ten years old. And there were a series of short films, public information films, uh, made to warn teenagers and uh, other young children about uh, playing in dangerous places. So there was one about building sites, uh, one about farms and farmyards, and uh, but the most graphic and notorious of them all uh, was a film about the dangers of playing near railway lines, and it was called um, The Finishing Line. It's an extraordinary film. These films were really quite extraordinary. This one in particular was structured pretty much as you might structure a horror film. Um, It was about a group of friends uh, who uh, played with one another. And uh, one by one, this group of friends, uh, egging each other on to do daft things by the railway, got picked off in a sequence of extremely graphic and gory railway accidents. I don't know if any of you can remember these films. They were just extraordinary and uh, really quite deeply disturbing. I can remember one of them being shown in our primary school and there were children fainting in the corners. There were children being sick in the other corner. And many of the teachers looked pretty queasy at the end of it too. And I I can still remember, I can still feel the kind of sickening sensation those, those films brought about when you watch them. But severe dangers demand severe warnings. So I guess I can, we can understand why those films were made. In the end, I suppose they were a little bit too much, uh, a little bit too extreme for the British public to stomach, and the experiment, if you like, wasn't repeated. But I've no doubt that, for, at least for a short while, at least for a short while, those films were very effective in doing what they intended to do. I certainly never wanted to go near a farmyard again, ever. Or a building site, or a railway. But I guess inevitably the effect wore off. And as we begin, I want you to imagine yourself in the shoes of someone who was involved in in that that, that campaign, in in getting those films out. And, And say two years have passed since you were involved, and you find yourself walking near a railway line, and to your horror, to your 
extreme horror, you, you see a group of children crawling under a fence so that they can join others who are playing on the tracks. Perhaps you even recognize some of them. Their, their faces you know. You know some of their names. You, you were there in their school showing them the film. You spoke to them about it afterwards. They seemed to be deeply affected by it. I mean, really affected by it. But look at them now. What would you do in, in that kind of situation? I think I'd, I'd want to cry out. I want to shout out in some kind of desperation. Look, stop. Look at what you're doing. Listen to me. Listen to me again. Think about the stupidity of what you're doing. Stop. Look. Listen. And think. Well, if that uh, kind of feeling of horrified concern in mind, welcome to the book of Hebrews. Because behind this very, very powerful and moving book of the Bible uh, lies a strikingly similar situation. Uh, we've got a group of people, a group of friends. Uh, this time it's some time ago and quite far away, back in the first century. And uh, they have heard something which has moved them and it has marvelously rescued them from a severe danger. Uh, I guess before they, they heard that, they were unaware of the danger. Uh, after all, uh, these were the people with a, with a Jewish heritage, people linked uh, to the synagogue, people with a rich knowledge of the, the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. In other words, um, they would have had right from the beginning an understanding of the world and the, and the one God who created it that was way, way superior to the, to the pagan world around them. Uh, so in some ways they were in a good place and they might not have been aware originally that they were, they were in any danger at all. And yet they had heard something. They had heard something that had persuaded them that without Jesus Christ, they were in just as much danger of the condemning judgment of God as those living around them in relative ignorance. They had heard that and it had affected them and changed them. But now that conviction seems to be, it seems to be slipping. They were safe for a time from the danger. But like those children wandering back onto the railway tracks, now they're, if you like, drifting back into it. Hence this document, this book that we know as Hebrews, it's a little bit like a letter in places, especially as we get towards the end of it. But for the most of it, it reads more like a sermon transcript. The writer himself, right at the end of the book, this is chapter 13, describes it like this. He describes it as a word of exhortation, a word of exhortation. And it's an exhortation for those drifting back into danger to stop, look, listen, and think Think really hard about what they're doing. Now, it's interesting, we don't really know exactly who these people were. Or even where they lived. I mean, we can make a few guesses, and people do, of course. We don't even know who wrote this. We don't even know that. And you might think that that would put us at a bit of a disadvantage in understanding this book. But no, actually, those things, those are good things. Those things actually help us to see that God has placed this book in the Bible 
so that he can speak a similar word of exhortation to Christians in all places and in every generation, including us, including us here tonight and over the coming term. You see, while we might not be tempted by quite the same things as they were, we might not be tempted to lapse back into the familiarity of Judaism, but many of us here particularly attracted to to go along to the synagogue every week. There are nonetheless plenty of other things around to seduce us away from our commitments to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it often seems to me, and I dare say it seems to you as well, that outside Christian commitment, things do look, at least, far more easy and even far more fun. There are people we know, people we have perhaps strong connections with. They they seem to be having an okay life, a good time, a better and easier time in many ways than than we are. And I know that in a a gathering this size, it's very likely there are people, even here tonight, who are right on the edge of being taken in by that illusion that there's something better to go back to. And uh, they may, you may well be in that situation here tonight, feeling perhaps a little weary and disheartened, exhausted in your Christian life. All this commitment of time and money and emotional energy that you've been pouring into this, all this struggle to grow in godliness, which never seems to get anywhere. And you're asking yourself, why am I doing this thing? Why am I doing this thing which seems so demanding and difficult and seems so unrewarding? There's, no, there's nothing tangible, there's nothing visible about the rewards that I'm getting from this. So we're going to begin this um, new academic year on Sunday evenings, hearing a word of exhortation from God, calling us back from drifting into those kinds of dangers. That is, I hope we're going to have over these uh, coming weeks some good old-fashioned pulpit-thumping preaching. To wake us up at the beginning of a new year. Although uh, you may notice pulpit thumping isn't particularly my style, neither is it Andrew's, although we'll wait and see. And that's going to be very good for us, I think. It's going to be good in particular for those of us who are at that point of struggle, those of us who are at that, that on the right, on the edge of perhaps giving up at this moment. But good also for all of us. Uh, to be eager to grow and to persevere with Jesus and to encourage those around us. And the idea is, uh, over this uh, coming term, we're going to cover the whole of Hebrews at high speed. Uh, Hence the title of this series, High Speed Heroes. So we're going to do it in just 11 weeks. That might seem to you slightly crazy, and uh, maybe it is. Um, But if I'm right in thinking that Hebrews is like a sermon... Uh, then we should be able to do that. But we should be able to do it in one week, shouldn't we? You know, we could come here and we could just read the book of Hebrews and that would be our sermon for the evening. In fact, if you do that, if you read Hebrews out loud, uh, you will find that it takes just 45 minutes to do that. It's a fairly long sermon for most of us, but not unthinkable. So 11 weeks should be plenty. It should be plenty. And even we've got two chapters to cover as we do tonight. I hope we're going to see that um, although some of the detail in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews is, quite, is quite tricky, it's quite dense, the big ideas, nonetheless, are all relatively 
simple. In fact, we hope we're going to see even tonight that these first two chapters have a relatively simple purpose to them, an introductory purpose to the book. And they summarize in many ways the big exhortation of the book for people drifting back into danger to to stop and to listen, uh, to look and to listen, to think. Why should uh, we do that according to these first two chapters? Well, first, because... We and they, the original readers, have heard something of unparalleled significance and importance. Because if I I put it on the handout, God has spoken to them in an unparalleled way through one who is son. That's the first thing. And the second reason why they should stop, look, listen and think is because what God has done through Jesus, the one who is son, is nothing less It's nothing less than to have destroyed the power of death over them. Neglect that, and the power of death comes back. What I'm going to do is simply to tackle those in turn under two headings. Here's the first one. Here's the first exhortation from the book of Hebrews. Stop, look, and listen. Stop, look, and listen, because you have heard something, says the writer. You have heard something of unparalleled importance and significance. Now you may have noticed that uh, the exhortation itself doesn't actually come first in chapter one. What comes first is verse one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and so on. Nevertheless, I hope we're going to see that this is where everything the writer says in chapter one of this book is heading. That is, he says all of this stuff, which might confuse us at first, about prophets and sons and angels in chapter 1, so that he can say, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. The reason comes first, then the exhortation. But it's helpful to have that exhortation in mind as we begin to look at the reasons. Why should they pay careful attention to what they've heard? Well, because they've heard something from a source that is greater, it's more important, more authoritative than any other source in the universe ever. And that, of course, is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. God has spoken through one who is son. Let me pick out uh, verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. In these last days, says the writer, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God has spoken to you, if you are a Christian here tonight, through one who is Son. It means it's spoken to you through a person who is essentially nothing less than himself. He's one who is heir of all things. All things rightfully belong to him. All things were made through him. And to be creator is, of course, the very hallmark of being God. What's more, the one who is son radiates the very glory of God. He displays precisely, precisely what God is like and all things exist or or not at his word. Now let's um, just pause uh, for a second or two at this point to think about that, to to think 
for a moment about how that should be affecting us. Think, think for a moment about all of your, your values, your beliefs, the way that you think about the world. And I suppose if we had time, uh, we could trace any of those things back to some point in the past when you heard them from somewhere. Or you heard them in particular from someone. You heard them in amongst all sorts of other things, I guess. But of those particular things, you were persuaded of them. And now they have uh, become a part of who you are, part of your belief structure, your values, the way you think about the world. Now, for the first readers of the book of Hebrews, the source of those things, all those values, would have been the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the, the Old Testament. These were Bible people. They would have grown up with the scriptures. They would have been part of family life. They would have been meeting together regularly in the synagogue to listen and study the scriptures. So you ask any of them, where did you first hear those things you think? The answer would have been from the scriptures, from the prophets, through whom God spoke, verse 1, in many times and in various ways. And within the scriptures, the most powerful and direct words came from God's messengers, the special messengers of the Lord, the angels. Uh, Think of Abraham, book of Genesis, hearing God by hearing the angel of the Lord. Or think of the Mosaic law around which the lives of these people would have been uh, shaped. Uh, In popular understanding, Moses, first and greatest of the prophets, received the law from the angels. Now with that in mind, we can begin to understand why the writer says what he says in verses 1 to 4. You see, if God has spoken through one who is son, then it trumps even that. That may have been good, but this is better. That may feel comfortable and familiar to you, the writer is saying, but this, this simply cannot be ignored. You wouldn't ignore a visit from an angel, would you? Yeah, I think that would apply to us too, wouldn't it? Yeah, we'd be kind of surprised, but we wouldn't ignore it. Or look at verse 4. Because of who he is and because of what he has done, the son is now recognizably as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. That's the, the name of being son. Is superior to theirs. Now let's be clear about this. It's not as if what God has spoken through the Son contradicts what he has said before. No, far from it. And, and look at how carefully the writer makes this point in that, that sequence of quotations from the Hebrew Scriptures that run from verse 5 to verse 14. The prophets did, speak, did talk of God speaking in a powerful and definitive way in the future, but not through angels. Not through angels. Look carefully at what the prophet said, and we can see that they were talking about the Son. In other words, what God said in the past through the prophets testifies in the end to the greatness and divine supremacy of the Son over the angels. They were the greatest source of God's revelation in the past, but now it is the Son. I hope you can kind of start to pick up the argument here. Therefore, 
Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, if the Son is greater than the angels, we must pay more careful attention to what God has said through him and not drift from it. Especially since in the past, God's people did drift from what they had heard from angels. And and I guess the writer here is particularly thinking about the, the law of Moses. And they suffered death and punishment as a result. How can we expect better if we drift from the greater thing we have heard through the Son? But what about us? Um... Famous people in the Sunday papers often get asked this question, don't they? What are your influences? You know, what are your influences? It would be great for someone to ask you. What are your influences? So let me ask you this Sunday evening. What are your influences? What has shaped you as a person? Uh, but I think the answer that most of us would give to that would really have nothing quite to match what these people had. They would have nothing quite to match the prophets and the angels, would we? Who, to, who spoke to me in my past and shaped me? Some various people I could think about. My, my parents, perhaps? My wider family? My teachers? Miss Lane from primary school? Mr. Appleton from my physics teacher, who's quite a bit of an influence on me? A host of respected but dead writers, that slightly wacky friend who went off the rails a bit, lecturers, tutors, experts, counsellors, bosses, Um, most of all friends, peers, acquaintances. But lovely as many of these people may have been, none of them had much of a connection uh, to the creator of the universe. They may have said nice things, but on what authority, we may ask, were they saying it? None of them can quite match the the prophets or the angels. But if the people shaped by the Hebrew scriptures, if the the original readers of this document needed to pay the closest attention to what God has spoken through his son, how much more, therefore, how much more, therefore, should we, when we've been shaped by much less reliable sources. And I particularly want to address uh, those of us here tonight who, who are indeed feeling right on the edge of, of, of giving up on our Christian commitment. Because I think if, if, you could, if you in particular can be persuaded by this, then the rest of us here will be too. And let me ask you direct. From whom did you hear the thing that is attracting you away from the Christian faith? From whom did you hear it? Uh, Perhaps it's the idea that it's okay to be unfaithful in your relationships, something like that. But where did that idea come from? Um, The idle chatter that we have all around us that, that mocks Christian values and ethics. And On what basis are people actually saying these things? How do they know them to be true? And how do any of these sources of what we think, how do they measure up to verses 2 and 3? How do they measure up to the one through whom the universe was made? The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Why, Why are you listening to idle chatter? And not to him. 
But what is this word which uh, God has spoken through his son? Well, you can see it already, I hope, uh, in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, for example. Chapter 2, verse 3. It is a word of great salvation. A word of great salvation. This takes us to our second and final point tonight. Not only is the exhortation to those drifting back into danger to stop and, and listen, is also to think. Think hard. Think hard about what you're in danger of giving up. Because what God has done through Jesus is nothing less than to have destroyed the power of death over you. And again, as we saw in chapter 1, the exhortation itself comes at the end. So this is chapter 3 and verse 1, which we've heard already tonight. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. Keep your thoughts, keep all your concerns, all your thinking focused, fixed on him. He is... Apostle, that is, he was sent by God to complete a particular task for us. He is high priest, that is, the task that he came to do enables atonement, bringing creator and creature back at one with one another, saving the creature from death. Now, what we're getting in that verse and uh, in much of chapter two is a, a very brief summary of what we're going to get much more of in the weeks to come. In fact, we might say that the the real heart of the book of Hebrews is all about understanding what it means for Jesus to have been a high priest and what his high priestly work is all about. So I'm just going to say three very brief things about this uh, before we finish tonight. Three very brief things about Jesus' greatness according to this amazing chapter. The first is this. The first is that Jesus' greatness becomes... Seen by us, known by us because of what he's done. It becomes seen by us and known by us because of what he's done. You can see that in chapter 2, verses 5 to 9. Think about him, says the writer Jesus. He is greater than the angels because of the humble task he took on for others. The one who is son has been given a higher status than all, than all the angels. But scriptures like Psalm 110 which you see quoted here in verses 6 to 8, help us to understand that this is because of what he did. He came to be made a little lower than the angels for a while in order to do something, in order to taste death and bring salvation from death. In other words, we want to avoid drifting from what we've heard, perhaps distracted by all the other things that we can see around us, then we need to be able to echo chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Think hard before giving him up. The second is that his greatness is most especially displayed by him completing the task he was given against all the odds by completing it against all the odds. Think about him some more, says the writer. Jesus, shown to be great through what he completed, what he finished, what he perfected. You can see this in verse 10, for example. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God 
for whom and through whom everything exists should make or demonstrate perhaps the the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Great because of the task he completed. Think hard before giving that up. And the third brief thing to say is that his greatness is therefore all for us. He is for us. He is on our side. He is on our side in our battle with sin and death. And he is even on our side in our struggles to give up on him. Think about him even more deeply, says the writer. Think about the intimacy between Jesus, who's now crowned with glory and honor. Think about the intimacy of him and those he came to save from sin and death. He took on human mortality as a brother to those for whom he was destroying that mortality, dealing with their sins. Verses 14 and 15 here are truly glorious, are they not? The writer says this, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Think hard. Think really hard before giving that up. What's more, as one who faced the temptation to give up in his appointed task, but who did not, he is able to help you as you are tempted to give up. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And I think the writer here has in mind, especially Jesus' struggles in, in Gethsemane, he's able to help those who are being tempted, being tempted especially uh, to give up in their faith. Think hard. Think very hard before giving any of this up. So that's very... Three very quick things, but as I said, these things are just a taster, and we're going to get much, much more of them, and much, much more on the high priestly work of Jesus in the, in the weeks ahead. But for the moment, if you are one of those people just on the edge of giving things up, if you're one of those people here tonight, and it's amazing that you are here tonight to hear this, think about it. Think about what this implies about the danger that you have been saved from. The danger you've been saved from is a mortal danger. That thing that you're contemplating uh, giving up your devotion for Jesus for. Well, it might seem more attractive in some ways. It might seem easier, less demanding, more fun, more socially acceptable, more tangible more visible, more here and now. But can it compare with this? Can it deal in particular with our, with our slavery to death? That's the main question, I guess. And let me, on top of that, especially employ you to stop thinking perhaps that in your struggles that, that Jesus might be against you in all of this. Jesus is not against you. He could hardly be more for you. He took on flesh and blood for you. He took on humanity, verse 14, so that by tasting death for you, he could destroy the power of death over you. 
and in your temptation to give up, please be aware that he knows precisely what you're going through. He knows precisely what you're going through because he's been through all of that himself. And he is able to help. Therefore, therefore, let me re-preach this part of Hebrews to you. Therefore, I implore you as brothers and sisters who have become caught up in this great salvation, think afresh upon this Jesus. Think deeply upon this Jesus who is sent for your sake and to deal with your sins. Now let me finish by uh, taking you back to that um, imaginary safety official I began with. The one who sees the, the children who were once safe and he sees them wandering back onto the railway lines again. What is he going to do, apart from shouting at them, what is he going to do to persuade them afresh not to do that? Well, I guess he might try various things. He might try to get someone they respect to come and talk to them, whoever that might be. Or he might well get someone who has been intimately and personally involved in the tragedy of railway death uh, to come and talk to them. Uh, perhaps a parent who lost a child, or perhaps someone's lost a, a best friend or, or, or a limb. Well, I hope you can see that the writer of Hebrews is doing something very similar with us tonight. There's no one at any place or time more worth listening to than the one who is son. The writer is making that very clear to people who know their Bibles well. No one deserves more respectful listening. Not even a prophet. Not even an angel. And we should be able to see that too once we've grasped chapter 1 verse 2. That he is the one, the son is the one through whom the universe was made. So when he speaks a word of salvation, of course we listen. But what is more, much more is that this is not a word of salvation thrown at us from a distance by some disinterested third party. This is a word of salvation won for us personally through suffering and death. It's a word spoken by someone intimately and personally involved in destroying the power of death over us. In the distant past, God's people ignored what he had said and uh, they reaped the dire consequences. The, right, the, the, reader, the first readers of Hebrews would have known that and known it well. But now God has spoken through one who is son. He has spoken a great word of salvation. How then shall we escape? if we were to ignore such a great word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, first of all, for that final comfort Uh, That because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he went through that torment, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with that temptation not to go through 
with the task he'd been given to do. Because he knows that, he is able to help us. So we just want to finish tonight by praying for that help specifically. And praying especially for those of us here tonight who are perhaps right on the edge of giving up. Lord, please speak a fresh word to them tonight. Please make them and all of us deeply aware of the greatness of your son and the word that he has spoken and the greatness of the salvation that deals even with death. Work that in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.